Welcome back to Training Babble. I'm Dave Shell, and today I'm joined by Dina Griffin, the nutrition mechanic again. She was gracious enough to come back and discuss the top nutrition mistakes. If you listened to the last episode, um, there were 20 mistakes. We kind of dug deep into number one, which was um, weight loss while you're training. And so today we're going to touch on some of the other top nutrition mistakes, and then um, we'll give you the full list on the show notes. So Dina, thanks for joining me again today. I am glad to be back, Dave. Thanks so much. Yeah. And I know, geez, we spent, or I spent a lot of time on that <laughs> first mistake or first realm of mistake, but as, um, hopefully people can appreciate the elements of nutrition and throwing in the athlete, uh, individual or the athletic person, like it just can get intricate and you know convoluted or complicated and nuanced so uh you know we'll, we'll see what we get through to through today and and uh have some fun um so you bring up a good point where we kind of lump nutrition and we just say nutrition right but there's so many aspects of nutrition that it's really easy to get into the weeds with. And last time we were talking about weight loss and how can you lose weight healthily in a healthy way um, as you're also carrying a high training load and also improving body composition. But nutrition goes into recovery and just day-to-day nutrition and eating healthy. Um, so I, I guess my point with that is that we won't be too hard on you because we understand that it's a very complex topic and it's hard to draw a very hard line between where one thing ends and the other begins. Excellent. Good points all around. So t- today, as, as we mentioned, you've got a long list of, I don't know if nutrition mistakes, um, maybe nutrition um, pitfalls. I don't know. I don't know how we want to phrase it, but you've got a long list. But out of those, there's some that jump out of you more than others. And so today we'll just um, spend a little bit of time talking about those and, and see where we go. Sounds good. Now, do you, should I just pick one, Dave, or do you want to pick a number there, like roll the let's, die? And <laughs> let's go in ascending order. So you you pick, if you can prioritize them, yeah, if there's one okay. that you think isn't that big a deal, start there, and then we'll work our way up to what you think the biggest. Okay. You know, one that might be overlooked or not thought of, and it's it's fairly simple, is the notion that it's okay to just eat the same way every day. And I've heard this from so many athletes. Like, I'm fine to just, you know, you tell me what to eat. I'll eat that way every day. Like, I just love robot eating. I'm just, I'm laughing because... I eat peanut butter and jelly every day. <laughs> That's right. okay. Peanut butter and jelly and apple and some chips are my go-to every day. Well, we can use you as a, an example, Dave, but there's pros and cons. But essentially the pitfall around that thinking or that way of designing nutrition is just that the that variety in the types of plant foods and even animal foods does so much to the gut flora. So all the trillions of bacteria and microbes in the gut. Um, A lot of us don't think about the benefits of eating a variety of foods on that other pretty important system in the body, which is 
the gut microbiome. So while I appreciate the convenience factor of like, I just want to eat similar stuff all the time and just tweak amounts based on hunger or what I'm doing for training, really the thing is, and this ties to more of the health piece as we age um, and trying to prevent disease, you know, maintain a healthy lifestyle and all of these aspects that if we can incorporate variety at least on a weekly basis, then we're going to do so much better for how the gut uh, flora look and how that turnover and and counts of bacteria and things uh, change. And then that has a role in um, in weight management, brain health, inflammation, immune system, and a number of other systems in the body. So I guess that's, I'll stop there and maybe, maybe you have a question or two, but that's one thing I wanted to throw in as like not too complicated of a basic um, statement that I'm making, although we could go into it again for another hour, like why and what that, what that whole gut thing (laughs) is doing for us. Right. And so I feel like that's a fairly recent, or we're starting to understand more about it over the last few years or so. And it's pretty crazy when and it's still fairly new science, but it's like what the gut biome and the mic and the flora, like control your thoughts and all these other things about what you crave. And it, it's just crazy. Um, so I guess, like you said, we could dig so far into that and we won't do that today, but I, as you're talking about um, having variety are there certain foods or certain types of foods that impact that more um, than others? So eating plant foods, do they have a bigger contribution to that? Where I, I feel like meat, especially our meat, where everything's raised on corn, probably isn't that different <laughs> from chicken to beef to pork to, you know, what have you. Great, Dave. Yeah, I would say you're spot on. It is plants, plant any, anything edible really that's plant. So that's going to drive that diversity in the gut um, so much more than proteins and fats. So I would say if we had to focus on diversity of foods, it would be that category of plants. But then we could break it down and say vegetables would be the biggie, Um I mean, they're all important, right? But I would say variety of vegetables and then the pre and probiotic foods. So the prebiotic foods are are those plant, mostly, yeah, plants, right, (laughs) that feed the bacteria in the gut. So there are different um, types of fibers and, and fibers within vegetables that feed the bacteria in the gut. So getting more of those foods, it's like garlic, onion, um, artichoke, there's a whole host, asparagus, things like this are really good, have compounds that really feed well um, our, our goody bacteria in the gut. And then we've got probiotics. So those are live cultures that we consume that's um, introducing more bacteria to the gut. So that would be more in your fermented foods. Um, which doesn't necessarily encompass just plants. Like, you know, um, fermented dairy would be an example there. But I would say, uh, you know, if, if you heard, ah, oh, eat more 
variety of foods for your gut. My next clarifying statement would be just eat a variety of plants over the week. So if you can get in, you know, through your meals, um, main meals throughout the week, just changing up the primary veggie or switching up your apple or your banana to something either seasonal or um, similar type in the same family, but just change, changing up that source can do wonders. Okay. So yeah. we used to, I, I mentioned on the last episode that I um, went to culinary school and, and that used to be the big thing is like eat a rainbow, you know, like have a very colorful plate and not just have your greens and your reds because um, I guess to simple oversimplify it is the macro and phytonutrients within there um, in the different colors and things like that. So uh, yeah. does that still hold today or is that outdated? For sure. That's another good guide is using rainbow, you know, the colors to get that variety. I think back then, not back then, I don't mean like eons <laughs> ago, Dave, but, you know, we used to think the rainbow is more derived or originated from getting those antioxidants and all those other compounds in for inflammatory purposes or anti-inflammatory purposes or other vitamin, mineral, those phytonutrients that you speak of. But now it's kind of another level and it's, it's the diversity of the types of fibers too that will feed the gut bacteria. Um, so it's a bit more than just that nutrient um, composition of the rainbow fruits and veg. Okay. So eat a variety of food. All right. Yeah. And then moving on to the next one. Okay. So a few of these, I'm going to hear in advance some eye rolls going on from the listeners, <laughs> but bear with me because I don't make this stuff up. And this comes from years of experience working with all kinds of athletes and, and even my own personal athletic journey. So I would say, I would say here it is. <laughs> number three, if you count, count the one we just talked about as number two and our first recording is number one, but really uh, the more you can do for building your health foundation the better, stronger, fitter, faster, resilient athlete you will be. So this is not a mistake per se, but if I flip the language around and say that those who focus so much and just exclusively on the performance um, and neglect all of the opportunities we have to build our most healthy self, uh, you know, we're missing out a little bit. So if we can, and really just think of um, establishing and optimizing a good health foundation, that just propels our athletic ability. So it's just something I've seen with athletes that come to me, for example, like I want to know how to fuel, you know, my marathon for my, or my, my fastest Ironman or whatever. Like sports nutrition is, the, is on their radar. But if we can break that down and kind of back step a bit and look at all of the other times that we have to optimize nutrition 
it will make a big difference in that performance aspect. Yeah, I, I feel like that's um, also something I'm guilty of. <laughs> but I, I feel like there's always this notion where if you're doing a bunch of training, you feel like you, and maybe it was more true in, in younger years, but you can get away with eating whatever you want, right? And it, yeah. But it's more like you perform in spite of your nutrition, not because of your nutrition. And it starts to catch up with you over time. And um, definitely, like you said, it's we see it all the time where people are so concerned about the intervals they're doing and things like that, and they neglect things like nutrition or getting enough sleep or um, just taking care of their body in general. And so that's a great one as well. Well, Dave, you know, along these lines of a little bit of woo-woo talk um, that, that <laughs> is, is really important for people to know is, okay, here it is, comparison game. So, for example, women saying, oh, my husband barely eats when he goes out for his three-hour bike ride, or my training partners barely drink water, you know, they're camels and they don't drink water. So it's comparing what our training partners and those around us are doing or what we see maybe on the internet and getting confused or thinking that's appropriate for you. Um, And I've seen that in so many settings and so many different iterations. And so while it might be insightful to see what others are doing around you for daily nutrition or hydration or sports nutrition, it doesn't always mean that that's the best thing for yourself Um, So one example is a gal I recently spoke with who was doing very long bike rides that were challenging, not just flat, easy, you know, easy aerobic rides. These were pretty intense rides um, and her hydration and calorie intake was virtually nil with very little breakfast going into this workout. And it partly stemmed from seeing what her her partner was doing her male partner, which was dramatically different. And then she'd go on some group rides um, and just get kind of sucked into that dynamic, you know, and basically my assessment was under fueling. She wasn't recovering as quite as well. Right. But, but she didn't know and, and maybe getting caught in that comparison trap. Um, so that that's something to be careful of. It, it's funny you bring that one up. That's um, there's a couple of guys I used to coach that were that yeah were pros, and they can they're camels and they can race with a bottle. You know they're doing two and three hour races with one bo- water bottle and, and maybe grab one at an aid station or something. And same thing with the gel. They might get away with one or two gels, and so constantly out there questioning me like, oh, have I done this to myself because I overfuel and so now my body just wants those carbs so bad but I try and it's I just cannot get away with it you know I I I feel it so much yeah and that's where we get into danger zone right because even if you compared yourself to same age same type of athlete same you know male female and you think oh well he's just like me or she's just like me um why am what I why is what I'm doing so different 
and I'm not performing quite as well. Or, you know, you, you start analyzing like that. Um, I mean, it's almost human nature to do that. But when we think of ourselves as athletes and trying to make the most of what we're trying to do out there, whether we're amateur athletes or prof- professionals, we really benefit from taking that time to work with our coach closely or um, nutrition professional to break it down and just go through you yourself as that individual athlete. I mean, we can uncover so much. And again, I think it's maybe some ego gets in there or fear or doubts, you know, but we, we don't have to judge and, and let all that get in the way. We can, we can really do a lot of positive um, improvements just by, you know, taking all those layers off and working, working one-on-one. And, and I'm sure this is a, a very complex answer here. And so we will try not to get into it too much, but I think you and I have talked about this one um, offline and, you know, I try to offer some general guidelines and, and I'd asked you before we started recording, what are some general guidelines? And of course your answer was that there aren't any general guidelines and it has to be individualized for each person. I, and I, for people that maybe can't afford a nutritionist, typically the information that I'm providing is, um, you know, 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour until you get beyond a certain point and then upping that. And then for water based on body weight ends up being around 16 ounces to 24 ounces per hour, depending on temperature and intensity. But I I guess, do you feel okay or confident giving somewhat general guidelines or do you feel like for everybody, it has to be individualized to, um, make the most of that uh, nutrition. Good one, Dave. You're putting me on the spot. <laughs> Working myself out of a job. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, geez. I know. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, even in the online course that I have, I mean, I put forth the general guidelines that we have based on research um, and then based on real life. So there, I think we can have some general guidelines. They're very broad, right? Like you just said, 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour. I mean, and I just saw a research study that was on ultra runners. The carb amount per hour was like crazy for someone like me. That would never work. It was 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour something like that. But then, you know, looking at the details, it was on male elite runners. So of course that doesn't apply. <laughs> but um, I think we can have those general guidelines for people who maybe um, don't want to work closely with a nutrition professional or can't. Then one of the suggestions, and this leads to another another uh, pitfall. Great segue. I know, good job. <laughs> is to document what you do. So the mistake is not documenting what you're doing with your nutrition. So if we talk about fueling and hydration for our training, a common uh, mistake I see is that 
there's like no clue what's going on with fueling, uh, yet we're logging power and heart rate, normalized power, you know, all these other metrics. But we're not capturing that nutrition and hydration data that can help us as we go along. So I would say if you are one to, you know, you're interested in really trying to improve or optimize or just validate that your nutrition is working for you, then I would start logging details, at least even though previously I just talked about, you know, daily nutrition and health, I would say for sports nutrition and hydration, if we can start logging, journaling, uh, what it is we're doing before, during, and after workouts, and really tie together energy and output and fatigue, all of the metrics that you know well, Dave, and you can speak to, um, to tell us, uh, you know what, you actually could benefit from a bit more on the hydration side. Or, you know what, let's just experiment this next week and let's repeat some of these training sessions and adjust the fueling instead of adjust the training and see how you do with with a shift in that pre-workout nutrition and hydration. And kind of, you know, do some of that N of one experimentation. So um, I think to answer the question, if I can go back to that, like, yeah, we can have the general guidelines, but really, how do you know if, how do you know if you need to adjust? And that comes from documenting and getting that feedback and then fine-tuning. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> and what's your uh, your next pitfall okay. or mistake? We're making good time. I think oh, we're going to yeah. get through all 20 we today. Might get... just, just to put the pressure on you. Oh, all right. Um, okay, let me cross that one off. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, okay, I'll move on to the next one. Ooh, this one might be a time sucker, so I better get into it. <laughs> Dave, okay, here it is. <laughs> I don't know why I have to say here it is. Um, the dieting thing. So a lot of times athletes will change their dietary pattern uh, without knowing their health status to begin with. So... I think I have three, three mistakes related to this, but, but one of these, and what I'm trying to say here for this first point is let's say you're latched on to wanting to be vegan and I'm not picking on any dietary pattern. You can substitute keto or carnivore or whatever diet, paleo. Um, so you make these I'll say dramatic or fairly significant shifts in your nutrition. Um, but you haven't taken the time to figure out if you're healthy right now before you even make this shift. So it's like, we don't know what your baseline is. Um, how do we know that shifting your dietary pattern to this degree is going to address uh, underlying things that we don't even know about. Um, <clears throat> one way to do that is getting blood work before you change your diet up. 
And I'll say that's particularly important if you do want to go vegan or keto or something where we are um, maybe restricting a food group or cutting out something that you used to have quite a bit of. Um, additionally, if if the athlete is pretty stressed, then that could be life stress, work stress, family stress, any kind of um, you know <laughs> disruption in in feeling uh, uh, you know maybe some imbalances or whatever we want to call it. Um, I think a lot of athletes may risk uh, a hit to their health if they don't know where they're starting and they're looking for this diet to solve all their problems. No, and we do see that quite a bit. And I think um, especially when you've got social media and and then um, what was it? Game Changers came out on Netflix not too long ago. And, and there's always some new answer, right? This, this new diet is going to going to solve everything for you. And so we do, maybe quickly change from one thing to the next. Um, and I can say that I would have never thought to get blood work beforehand, but you're absolutely right. If you're already deficient in one thing because you're not eating a diverse enough diet <laughs> and then you cut out more things from that, um, it's just going to exacerbate that issue. Yeah. So for example, I don't feel very good. This is a statement I hear. I don't feel very good. I just don't, you know, I feel sluggish or whatever. So I'm going to try, <clears throat> I'm going to try vegan because so-and-so is, and they look great. They seem to feel great. But what if that sluggishness is actually partly coming from an iron deficiency or you're under fueling from a da- daily nutrition standpoint? And now you introduce another dietary pattern that does warrant some forethought and some planning, especially for athletes, it's possible, you know, that you can worsen that iron deficiency or whatever it is that's, that's contributing to that fatigue. Um, the other part, and this, you know, might be uh, a new number on the list here, Dave, but <laughs> is, uh, is attributing that diet exclusively to being the answer to everything. So I'll give an example and see if this resonates. Um, Someone who cuts dairy and animal proteins, so now they're eating plants, plant-based, right? They lose weight, feel better. And so now the plant-based eating or whatever diet we want to substitute there Um, dietary pattern is like the bomb, right? This solved all my issues that I had complaints about. The problem is we don't know what it is exactly. So the, the reasons you might feel better definitely could be because you have a better diet quality now, but it's also maybe because you're eating fewer calories that contributed to the weight loss, right? You cut out So yeah, you cut out dairy and meats, but a lot of times if we look at what kinds of meals have meats and dairy, there's also other elements to the meal that may have been problematic. And that could be just excessive calories. It could have been 
you know, fried foods or higher saturated fats. We just can't pinpoint it and say, yes, your vegan diet was the answer. Um, so I just, I just say that and I know people might send the hate mail or something, but it's not, it's not that simple that just is simple. <laughs> a simple dietary switch is the answer. It's more layered than that. Um, uh, so that's something that kind of gets, gets under my skin when I see this, this attribution to a diet that really, it, it was a whole host of changes that contributed to the outcome you're seeing. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, um, I don't know if that was number two A or two, where yeah, we'll just have to toss out count. the numbers at this point. <laughs> know, just keep going. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go to the blood work thing because that is important. No matter what kind of diet you're on, I would say, Dave, this is a mistake athletes make. is not pursuing blood work to see where they're at um, health-wise and performance-wise. So that blood work really can reveal areas, not just nutrient deficiencies. It can reveal poor rec recovery it can reveal signs that we are not consuming enough calories. Um, I mean, nutrient deficiency is definitely important. So if we don't have uh, optimal B12 and iron status and, you know, if we see funky things with thyroid, I mean, the list goes on and on. But those things can definitely affect health and performance. So what I recommend is that you work with someone who can refer you to um, athlete-specific blood testing um, instead of just going to your general doctor who may not be sports-minded. They won't run sufficient blood work to begin with for you as an athlete. And then whatever blood work they do run, so if you can beg and plead for them to check iron and all these markers, um, the reference range for what is considered normal is, is really looking at a sick population, not an athletic population. And that's something a lot of athletes don't know well enough. And so they'll be told like, oh, your iron level is fine. You know, you're in the normal range. Um, but really it could be, it could be in a suboptimal range for an endurance athlete, especially for women um, are highly competitive athletes. So we really need to put the sports performance glasses on and look at that blood work and then apply you as the individual co context when we interpret that data. Um, so blood work's really important, and that could be a couple times a year, upwards of four times a year, like once a quarter. And, and we can scale down the blood work depending on what the initial findings are. Right. So um, continue to monitor maybe those things you were deficient in and see if you're making headway on that rather than um, running every test every time. Exactly. what you're suggesting. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And I think um, that's certainly not something, I mean, I guess for me, it's been more of a reactive thing where you might look for blood work once you've run out of options with everything else, then it becomes like the last resort where this is more of a um, proactive approach 
to avoid those issues. Exactly. For sure. And I think so important for new athletes, for those who have changed their dietary pattern, um, you know, new athletes, by, by that I mean if we're getting into triathlon or getting into an endurance sport or changing up sport, you know, going from being a cyclist to um, triathlete, that kind of thing, where the training programming may be quite different and that taxing on the body is different. Um, I mean, in blood work, I think it is we think it's very expensive. And again, I think if we think about investing in our health, investing in our performance, the few hundred bucks, gosh, I, I would say we could probably justify that some way or another. Give me, give me your budget and your books and I'll, I'll work it in, you know, like I really see so much value yeah. in that. Might have to forgo that set of wills or the, uh, new uh, power meter or saddle <laughs> or prior just prioritize right yeah yeah exactly yeah all right that's a good one okay uh, Ooh, can we talk about women for a bit absolutely Ooh, yay here we go um this is a n relatively newer thing so all of us female athletes and all the coaches we females need to be chatting about our menstrual cycles with our coaches. And if we are, aren't having menstrual cycles, so if we are on birth control or we are in perimenopause, menopause, you know, we're in a master's athlete category, it's still legitimate conversation um, to talk about your stage of life, biological life with your coach. Um, because we are learning so much more about how um, our sex hormones affect training and recovery. And this, again, Dave, could be a whole other hour podcast, but <laughs> um, the mistake, if I had to say, what's the mistake here that she's talking about? It's, it's underappreciating the role of our sex hormones and what that does for performance and recovery and brain cognition focus, um, nutrition tweaks that are needed. I might just pause there and let you comment and see if, you know, how you want to go with that one or just leave it. No, no it's certainly something that is a consideration. I know that I've tried to learn as much about it as I can over the last couple of years, but at the same time, I feel that it's been, and maybe you can help with this, but I feel like it's been harder to put into practice. And it's definitely a, in the past, it's been a taboo subject, um, but I encourage my female athletes to talk to me about their menstrual cycle. And, and it's been very illuminating in that there were several that weren't having um, their period each month. And so that was something that had to be addressed. And um, I think some of it came down to underfueling or too high of a training load, which kind of go hand in hand. But anyway, I, I guess my question to you would be, it's just hard to put that into practice sometimes. And I know that there's, as you're looking at the different phases of the menstrual cycle, there's certain training might be tailored around that. But a lot of times, maybe you're not having that much interaction with an athlete that you can tailor it to that degree. So I guess 
one step below optimal, how do you approach that? Uh, let's see. I know. And I'll just clarify that. Okay, I guess yeah. around, add to that. I guess for me, optimal is, you know, you're, you're planning around that cycle and you have your constant contact with that athlete and you're planning training based on their, where they're at in their cycle every month and things like that. Um, but because it's not like clockwork, you'd essentially be having to plan like four or five days at a time and adjusting as you go. Yes. And I think, Dave, I mean, I think this is illuminating an area like, well, if you as a coach and you as the athlete can first find the patterns and if they are that irregular, that may warrant some other investigation. If you can get a sense of the pattern, though, then I still think you can overlay some general, um, like, you know, micro blocks or micro cycles of training. However, on the flip side, I think we are shifting maybe in this new, like, paradigm shift that for some women or maybe all female athletes, we will need to look at how we coach athletes differently. And that may require some upfront, you know, more work on the coach's part. But if we realize that that's going to serve that athlete better, then is it worth your time, you know, to have um, training put in place that really only does look out three to five days in advance, you know, and, and then you revisit and review and put in the next little teeny tiny block of training. Um, yeah, because I know I've heard, heard that concern, like, well, this is going to take a lot of time, and how do we do this practically? And, I, you know, we have to figure that out. Well, and for me, it's not even, like, not thinking about my time. It's also thinking about it. It's hard enough sometimes just getting an athlete to leave comments on every workout or like we, if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, recording their nutrition, what did you drink? What did you eat during this ride? And so now this adds a whole other level. And I understand, yes, if an athlete's paying for a coach, if they're interested in their performance and investing in their performance, then they need to be willing to take that step. But it's, it can just be a challenge in general, I think, but something to strive for. Yeah. And I think ultimately this is education. Like here, if we work, here's what we need to know, Ms. Female Athlete, about you and your body and your biology. And here's what we're going to get out of it. We're going to be able to make you stronger, um, recover well, so that you can keep on this training that we're prescribing for you and really ultimately achieving your athletic goals so much more quickly or more efficiently. Um, so I think a lot of this comes down to education and we still have a lot to learn, but I think, yeah, there are a number of elements like education, the practicality, how are we going to do this? Because each woman's different, you know, and then their individual goals. Um, so that's where, you know, call me up and we'll, we'll figure it out. There you go. A shameless plug. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Fantastic. And, and I absolutely agree. That could be another, an entirely other episode or multiple episodes because it is such a complex topic. And I'll just tag on to say to the women 
out there, female athletes, because I didn't do this for years. I didn't know. I have, I have had male coaches more than female coaches. Um, but I didn't speak up either. And I just discounted this part of my own female physiology. Right. So I want to say, I want to say to the female athletes, I mean, you can do yourself a big favor by documenting what it is that's going on with your menstrual cycle or signs and symptoms of perimenopause. Um, it affects so much about how you train and how you think and how you perform and so forth. Um, so I feel that it's on us too to convey that information to the coach. And we shouldn't have to rely on our coach to bug us for that. Or, you know, it's a two-way street, basically, is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Okay. Well, let's see here. What can I dig into next? Um, mm, black and white thinking. And you talked about this, Dave, with Coop, right? Coach Coop a bit, like, there's so much polarization in how we approach health and dieting and nutrition. It's either keto or it's vegan or it's high carb or it's low carb or it's I need to be a good fat burner or I should be a carb burn. Like what? Um, and I think that's a thing too when we think about us as athletes is having kind of breaking down or breaking those <laughs> black and white thinking this or that kind of walls, breaking those down. Um, because just, just like we were saying with training and, and nutrition periodization, maybe in that, that other recording we did, Dave, um, we are not static individuals. We're not robots. And so we can't sit and have this pigeonhole viewpoint with nutrition. I know this is super broad, what I'm saying, but I, I see this too much where we get stuck in a dietary pattern and we're forcing it and we're, you know, we can't budge and we're forcing the 60 grams per hour of carbohydrate or we're forcing the low-carb diet and, and just not willing to see that maybe there, there needs to be adjustments or... Um, there, there is optimization that it can occur if we can just uh, move away from the extreme ends. I think so much of that stems from the mindset of if, if some is good, more is better. And, and we do kind of have that, like you said, that black or white thing where it's like another um, example of this might be polarized training, right? Like, oh, if polarized training is good, then I should never be in the middle zone. Yeah. I'm either going easy or hard. And and so we kind of gravitate towards that. And what we might miss sometimes is that there's so many things, there's so much nuance that can't get captured in a study or in a book or in an article or what have you, that you have to get it down to the major components of it so that you can put it out there. But if you tried to just like, our last podcast or this podcast, if you try to explain every other situation in which that may not be true or it might be different, then you just go down a never-ending rabbit hole. And I just want to add on to that, that 
just for my own soapbox is we see this a lot with athletes too, where like you say, you can't just recreate performance. You can't just look back and say, okay, well, I, last time I did this, I wore these socks and I slept this many hours the night before. And then I, this, this is a type of oatmeal I had. And then I had my best race ever. And so now I'm going to recreate that every year or looking back at the workout you did. And it's, I had an a uh, conversation with an athlete about this the other day where um, training stress score is something we talk about a lot. And it's like, every workout gets assigned this training stress score. And it's like, well, do you think if you did the same workout at the beginning of the week and the same workout at the end of the week, is that the same training stress score? Do you think your body sees that as the same stress? No, so much has happened in those four days or five days that it's a different workout at that point. And those are the things that you kind of lose as we try to simplify it so that we can consume it and as information. That's beautiful. Yeah. I think it speaks to context. Right. I mean, exactly. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's like, let's really step back here and put this whole thing and pick in our, our own context, um, because that will help determine where on this spectrum we need to be for right this moment or where we are in the short term. And geez, that could be totally different next week or two months from now or two years. Right. And we, and we hate ambiguity. We want answers and we want these very like, well, how much is my threshold power going to go up in these next three months? And it's like, yeah, I don't know. Might not go up at all. (laughs) We're going to give it our best shot and like do everything we can, but it might not work, you know? So um, yeah, our bodies are very complex things and it's, and the environment is constantly changing. Yes. Yep. Sorry. That was a, you got me on my soapbox. No, that was good. That was good. Yeah, (laughs) important to bring up for sure. Uh, Okay, Dave, I was going to switch gears a little bit here to a couple other specific uh, items on my list in that realm of pitfall slash mistake slash gotcha. But I wanted to go back to a little bit of the – calories per hour or fueling, you know, for, you know, the sports nutrition realm. Um, and this has to do with GI distress. So, you know, depending on your individual tolerance, your individual gut, your athletic ability, uh, there are a whole bunch of factors here, but GI distress, gastrointestinal distress can manifest in many ways. So, you know, we've got mild uh, distress, which we could say would be like burping and, you know, feeling a little reflux. And then we have more uncomfortable, um, significant distress where that could be bloating and cramping and, and then maybe vomiting and diarrhea being the worst of all of that. Um, or ischemia or things like this. So one thing is just that thought or, or notion like, oh, GI distress, this is just part of the process of being an endurance athlete. And I live with it, you know, especially runners and triathletes um, who are more 
predisposed to suffer from GI distress that you actually don't have to put up with it. We can get to the root of it. So that one statement is like, "Mm, if you're suffering and having a lot of GI distress, the mistake is thinking that that's how you are forever and that's just how it's going to be. But oftentimes, if we just dig in, uh, and I'm trying to relate this to the mistake or pitfall, is that the fueling choices can be, you know, one of the common areas or the source of that GI distress. So that could be how many calories per hour, whatever our fueling plan looks like. It could be the source of the calories. Um, It could be also hydration, which was another separate item on my list here. But um, this, I think I wanted to say also that it's not just fueling. There can be a lot of reasons why we each have um, varying manifestations of GI distress and that severity can be different. So this is kind of a caution or just a gotcha or just like put your light bulb on kind of moment. And when we reflect on our own athletic uh, accomplishments, you know, if you can think of areas where you have suffered from a GI stress perspective, um, you know, that's something that we can work on for going forward and just try and mitigate, minimize all of that. So if, if that does pertain to you, I would say look at how your fueling choices are um, before workouts. So it's not just what you're consuming during a workout. It's what you've been um, consuming maybe even in that 24, 48 hours prior that could be bothersome. And, and then keep your eye on the hydration because that can make a big difference in how the system will behave or maybe not to behave. Um, so there are a lot of levels right. there, but I just want to bring that up because I think it's, it's kind of one of those embarrassing things for athletes, for some athletes anyway, to talk about. I know others don't, don't mind sharing their, um, potty stop yeah. details. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna say, I've seen some, um, triathletes with, uh, <laughs> with evidence of it all over their shorts. So. Yeah. Um, a, a, a question to that because that's definitely some I mean I can't can't really think of any athlete I've talked to that ever hasn't had some episode um, but one of the things that I run into time and time again is that we we always talk about practicing you know practice your nutrition practice your nutrition and we'll we'll practice it and what works in training a lot of times all of a sudden you get to race day and whether it's the nerves are high or you're just going that little bit harder you end up with GI distress, even though you've practiced it time and time again. And so I'm just curious if you have any insight to that. And then a follow-up question, as you had mentioned, kind of looking at what you ate before and things like that. But if you have, like, if you have practiced it and then you get into a race situation and you end up with GI distress, what are, what's kind of the checklist to, um, to go down and say, okay, this might be it. And if it's not this, it could be this. Yeah, you know, one thing, that scenario where I, you know, I feel confident I practiced this nutrition plan over and over. So why didn't it work on race day? I think part of it is, is looking a little bit back in time, because I have found where 
a lot of athletes are just focused on the during workout, during training nutrition, and they forget that breakfast part or the dinner the night before or that, again, 24, 48 hours prior, that they really haven't practiced that piece quite as much. Um, so I would, I would really, you know, say, let's look at that more carefully. And maybe we need to, to shift some attention to that piece. Um, the other thing I think is the timing element. So, you know, a lot of races, right, would start pretty early. And we may not be mimicking that time element as far as consumption of meals as well as on what will happen on race day. I don't know if you've seen that, Dave. Like, well, if your wave starts at 6.50, you know, were, were we, for some of our key brick workouts or whatever, were we really practicing breakfast at, you know, 5.24 or, you know, really looking at that kind of scenario? Um, and- right. Yeah, there's so much to be said for the specific time of the day, right, where if you're doing, if you're going to be racing in the heat of the day, but you do all your runs super early in the morning, then yeah, that's going to be an issue. Yeah. Again, going back to Ironman where you're going to be running when it's the hottest part, but if you're doing everything at eight in the morning, it's like now you're a little dehydrated and you know, yeah. blood's being diverted. So anyway. I think that is the other element I was going to mention is the environmental impact on the fueling plan. Right. So not, not, we can't always mimic that in our training you know, if we're going to do Kona or we're going to race in Florida or in the high mountains and you don't live in that situation or environment, how do you um, anticipate that or practice for that? So that would pose another potential area of like why the race day didn't work out. It's just we didn't get the opportunity to mimic that training environment. And then back to the gut, Dave, I mean, there's so much going on in in the intestinal tract, when the intensity gets up there, body temperature is going up. Um, we're putting whatever into our body, simple sugars or, or not enough hydration. So there's a whole environment within our body that can get disrupted or, um, you know, like that leaky gut kind of concept where there's some bacteria coming into the into the blood that can make GI distress occur and that's not stuff we can forecast in advance otherwise we wouldn't have this problem um right. but so right. to your second question there as far as like a checklist what to do if we experience GI distress even though we planned as well as we could and we had our solid nutrition and racing plan um a lot of times making sure the heart and you know this too, and you can speak to it, Dave, just like slow intensity a bit, which a lot of times we're forced to do is maybe walk or just slow down, um, you know, pedal easily for a few minutes, let heart rate come down. That lets blood pooling to the gut uh, improve to hopefully take down some of that distress that's occurring um, a lot of times I would say it's backing off on the simple sugar intake, just back off, meaning wait 10, 15 minutes. 
Um, of course, if we feel nauseous anyway, we're probably not likely to shove more stuff down the down, down the pipe anyhow. Um, but I think hydration would be the thing to look at too, is just, uh, you know, sipping some fluids, which ideally would be something like, um, can I name names, Steve, brand name? Oh, absolutely. Instead of like a concentrated Gatorade or infinite formula, it might be something more like a scratch hydration so something that has a little touch of sugar but it's not nearly the complicated formula that the gut has to work through to break down so fluids can be really important and I mean a little bit of water we just don't want to do tons of plain water because that might exacerbate a problem that's going on Um, I know there are some anecdotal things like oh you know a peppermint or a ginger chew, um, peppermint gum, like that can just kind of settle the stomach. Um, we don't have a whole lot of science for that, but I know anecdotally and even personally that can like, oh, just change up the palate, kind of right. provide that little relief, uh, herbal relief for the stomach. Um, I, I know a few other athletes that just prefer to hurl and get all that over with. I am not able to <laughs> there, do that. I'm there is that, right? I'm not able to suggest that. <laughs> so just to go back on something you um, just said a little while ago. So one thing I've advised my athletes to do, and maybe I'm wrong in this, but so one thing they've run into um, happens, seems to happen quite often is you, you all of a sudden get to a point where you feel like your stomach isn't emptying. And so I, a lot of times advise my athletes to have a bottle of scratch and then also a bottle of plain water. And we try to alternate like every 15 minutes you're drinking like sips, not guzzling your sips, but one scratch. And then the other is water with your fuel. So that you're, you know, whether it's a gel or a bar or whatever. And so you're alternating and eating like every half hour. But if you get to a point where you feel like your stomach's not emptying and you're it just feels like things are sloshing around. I tell them back off plain water for a little bit to try to dilute that and let the gut empty. Um, it seems to work, but maybe it's anecdotal as well. So I don't know if you could speak to that. Yeah, that can very well be effective. I mean, the fact that you've had your athletes feel benefit too speaks to some of that complexity with um, gastric rate emptying. So what Uh, you know, items or that bolus of food in the stomach uh, or simple sugars or whatever it is, how quickly is it getting out? And if we're putting in um, maybe in advance of any onset of distress, if we're putting in too much, too quickly, or not enough of the right kind of fluid, composition, then that can sit in the stomach a little bit longer. So it makes sense what you're saying is reducing the volume, um, lowering the osmolality of what we're putting in just so there's some time to let it clear out and and get into the small intestine. Gotcha. All right. We have done really well. And so I'm going to let you finish with your your number one all-time mistake. Oh, do I have to make you choose just one? Well, that's tough, but let me see. You know, um, <laughs> Dave, okay, all time. 
I mean, was it this podcast? Was it was it doing this podcast? Is that your number one mistake? <laughs> no I mean, I could I could be a goofball and say don't believe everything you read on the internet, but that's it seems like all of us should know that by now, right? <laughs> you would. That is such a loaded question. You would think. You certainly would think, and yet here we are. No. Um, yeah, I mean, it's funny because when I look at the stuff on my list, some of it is specific, more specifics like, ooh, the hydration element or, um, uh, you know, the recovery nutrition. But I think, I think in general, it is going to come back to, and, and again, this comes a bit from my own personal experience is just not appreciating you as the individual athlete and that you, you need your own training program, right? You need your own nutrition and the amount of time you spend Googling and reading and stuff, that's cool to educate yourself, but I don't know where you're getting your info. So being really careful with your information gathering and seek out experts or, or, you know, knowledgeable professionals in your area of interest. So if you don't have a nutritionist or you don't have a coach because of cost, I would say looking at how much time you spend, you know, researching and and I bet justifying some time with a coach, whether it's nutrition or training, that that can do wonders for getting you on a track that's best for you. And that is such a great segue to if somebody is interested in working with you, where they where can they find you? I am at nutritionmechanic.com. That's the best place. Or Dina at nutritionmechanic.com. And then have that on Instagram and Twitter and all that good stuff. Thank you, Dave. Or Facebook, if that still exists. Yeah, right. Instagram is Nutrition Mechanic. Twitter is Dina Griffin RD. I know I have different handles depending on the on the social media, but uh, Facebook is Mechanic Dina. Um, so you know, if you don't want to remember any of that or look at the show notes or any of that, I would say nutritionmechanic.com is the best and you can find me. Awesome. And, and I'll just point out that you, you said you already have one online course up. You're working on a couple more online courses. So if people want to learn more and want to invest in their own performance and nutrition, they can go to the site and um, take one of your courses and maybe set up some time with you as well. Yes. Thank you, Dave, for mentioning that. Absolutely. Thank you very much for taking the time. It's a pleasure again, and I hope we get to do it again soon. It's been fun. Thank you so much.